Welcome to PivotCast. This episode was recorded on September 13th, 2018 at the Transat Club. In this episode, we have readings from authors Stephanie Warner, Sheena Kamal, and Clara DuPlessis. This episode has a bit of strong language, so listener discretion is advised. Hey, welcome everyone to Pivot. Who's new here? Welcome. It's like in an exercise class where they say, who's new? And you never raise your hand if you're, even if you're new, because they'll make you go to the front. It's not like that, though. Uh, welcome. This is apparently the 10th year of Pivot, which we forgot until five seconds ago. Yay! It's actually, as Paul pointed out, the 20th year, uh, but 10 years under the Pivot name. So we're excited, especially excited with this amazing lineup. Um, so if you're new here, Pivot is the longest running, I think, reading series in Toronto. Still running. If it isn't, we're just going to say it is. We're not actually. <laughs> I think it's Art Bar. Oh, it might be Art Bar. But you know what they say, number two tries harder. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. We've got Stephanie Warna. Warna. <laughs> from, from Boston all of a sudden. Uh, Ste- <laughs> Stephanie Warner, Clara DuPlessis, and Sheena... Come on! <laughs> I also um, the last names and first names, in fact, printed out in invisible ink. So I'm just gonna do a guessing game of whose bio is who. Uh, yeah. So let's bring up our first reader. How does that sound? Good. Excellent. <clears throat> oh, a few things actually. Sorry. Thank you to the Transact for giving us this space for free. Um, thank you to Toronto Arts Council, who makes it so we can pay our readers. And I would also like to read a quick land acknowledgement. Uh, for thousands of years, this has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are so grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Okay. Steph Warner was born in Kamloops and grew up in BC, Alberta, and the Yukon. Her poetry has appeared in numerous Canadian literary journals, including the Montreal Poetry Prize Global Anthology and was awarded second place in the 2015 PRISM International Poetry Contest. She was awarded a faculty studentship at the University of Manchester in 2016 and is there working towards a PhD in poetry. Please welcome Stephanie. Good evening. Thank you so much to Michelle and Kinesia for having me and as well to Transac um, for providing the space. And I'm just gonna adjust the mic a little bit. Um, Yeah, so I am reading from my first collection of poetry, A Violent Streak, which is available for sale at (laughs) the harpsichord or the, I'm not sure what that is, um, the little piano, yeah, by the door. Um, Yeah, so I have, six poems to read tonight. Um, very excited to be reading with Clara and Sheena. Very honored to be sharing the stage. And so without further ado, I will start with post-Tata Creekism. And this poem draws a few lines from the Futurist Manifesto by Manretti. Post-Tata Creekism. 
Dervishing glass, compass rose in the dutiful coupling. My heart, a seed pod, puffer fish blown against the rule that flickered in the wheel of amber, its molten corona, and in the moon's slant clock, snake charmer courting my still childish blood. Remember father's zoetrope with the jockey horse in silhouette. The feeling you were a god, quite lonely, lingered at the tower's slotted window. That spin, the horse's rickety leaping, then the eye knitting story everywhere, shameless, shameless. 1896, the camera is invented, and two Englishmen can say, with due fanfare, ladies and gentlemen, the hooves do indeed all leave the ground. And in Italy, a roaring motor car which seems to run on machine gun fire is more beautiful than the victory of Samothrace. Ruled were the boys with aces in their spokes and their inheritance, a world of spades as spades, the garter snake's rictus in the crown royal bag. They nailed her to a fence post by Tata Creek, her body berserked, rigid as a flag, as they stoned her, pulped her into the grain and eyelets of wood, the heap of their bikes glittering in the sun, the bright metals of their fraternity. And you found the nest she'd left behind, like Super 8 without its canister, seething, seething, obsidian threaded with gold, stitching its zeros into the switchgrass. We declare that the splendor of the world has been, has been enriched by new beauty, the beauty of speed. Okay, so the, the next poem, um, we're moving from the Kootenays to China, as you do. This one is set in Beijing, where I was working for a year um, at the University of Geosciences, teaching literature, and Anyway, I, the, the poem concerns my ride home from the pub <laughs> um, called The Cellar Door, and the owner of that pub, who was slightly crazy, um, would take me home in her extremely precarious bubble car. I think these only exist in Beijing, I hope. So it's like half the size of a smart car. Um, and just to put this into context, Beijing is about the size of Connecticut, so Terrifying. <laughs> I'm glad I was slightly drunk for these rides home. Um, with much fondness, shapes and sizes. When couched in one of Man Ray's glycerin teardrops at 30 clicks an hour, immediate danger is understood abstractly. Like a tax return, Daniel Day-Lewis as a cobbler, or the cloud, and Rain has made an executive decision. My Laowai tongue will make such a cock-up of the tones. I'll end up in a second or third tier Chinese city in a very bad way. The word for foreigner being ghost. And home, jia. A roof under which a pig. Animal husbandry, Sheng dynasty, says Rain. My insubstantiality bundled in the back of the bubble car. Capacity, two humans, one cat, an amp. Susie and the Banshees, big in Japan. Yes, fight and flight have taken a staycation. 
and my hangover coiled in the buzz like a scorpion in formaldehyde. It just seems wrong, a city the size of Belgium. Endless ring roads, bypasses, and tunnels where taxis are sleeping it off, the lighting cranked to Ibiza. Ribbons of highway, nobody would dare flaneur. Um, all playing cat's cradle with each other. Not moving so much as moved. A god, quite bored, tipping a silver ball through a wooden box maze. And nothing to yoke the eye save fractals of neon. Or the promise in chubby letters, home in. The full English blackout curtains, crescent moon with a nightcap spooning the waist of its dark twin. And now Rain is describing a club in Berlin where people freeze their into and each other to dream pop. I get it. The combined gigantism and lack of detail. Simulation of a city and the graphics on a shoestring where the video game limit drops its particulate soft focus somewhere between a stone's throw and middle distance. The pollution's worse at night but I take off my mask and breathe, the invisible PM 2.5s, the intimacy of carcinogens small enough to take a hairpin turn into the bloodstream, the one-off alleys of capillaries to finally darken the doorsteps of cells, tower block after tower block, some still being poured home in after home in, and that trick of a lone lit window, glowing more human life through synecdoche than anything wrought of hair and blood. So I have a lot of birds in the third section of A Violent Streak. Um, one of the poems is about the lyrebird, which does anybody know what a lyrebird is? There are some exaggerations, I think, with the lyrebird. I mean, lyric poetry as well. I sort of see the lyrebird as a mascot of lyric poetry, perhaps, um, if I'm reaching, or I may reach. Um, but the lyrebird is a sort of peacock-type bird that has a huge tail. Um, not as beautiful as a peacock, but, but what the lyrebird can do is sort of, yeah, she, he or she is listening to the sounds in the environment and basically can mimic anything. The sound of a chainsaw or rain falling on leaves or other bird song. And he collects all of these sounds and sort of stitches them together into a love song, um, which he uses to woo the other lyrebird ladies, or maybe just a lady, I don't know. So, and, th and this poem is spoken in the voice of the lyrebird. Devious thing that I am, so secretly dowdy, a pinhead with watery eyes, bottom feeder, malnourished, scrounging for the flicked menthol tips of larvae, grubs, some pretty half notes. Can't even fly. But I may be the last romantic, scuttled under tatty showgirl feathers. A god, distracted, blew the budget on the tail. And hovering the forest floor, B-movie UFO, my cry in love betrays my dithering, my hoarding, and lack of self-care. 
Under the flautus persimmon tree, in a window he shares with his wife, I let rip my whole jerry-rigged repertoire. Chainsaws, bandsaws, shutter clicks, the blathering of bees, nail gun, tantrum, a raven's piss take, the hailing of a husband with jangled keys. Kumbaya, my lord, dad, I'm bored. Car alarm, purling rain. Northern lights, knitting, crickets frit-fritting, gone the sun, dee-dee-dee-dee, zippo flicked, fingers licked, BB gun, the, t the tinkling pines. Hush, bebe, listen, mockingbird losing her goddamn mind. And little old me, hindways, pants on fire, protesting far too much. Okay, so this, this next one is a sort of love letter on the topic of love um, to the Mars rover. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Mars rover continues his, its, her, <laughs> their, I, I don't know, um, good work <laughs> on Mars. And so what I learned over the course of this tour is that there are actually a few Mars rovers now, and the latest models have been programmed to sing happy birthday to themselves over and over is a sort of self-soothing thing, which is probably the saddest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> On April 1st, oh my God, the world just gets more and more disturbing. Um, or Mars. Anyway, Elon Musk, call me. Um, wow, I just said that, okay. <laughs> this is not a good moment for Elon Musk. So let's dedicate this to Musk, who's currently a bit embattled and probably could use some cheering up. Rove. In the caves of Neo, we wander the exhibit of ancient tools. Arrowheads of flint, needles, the fluid, almost a feet line used to render the sacred bull. I think of you, the world's fanciest Swiss army knife trawling a crater the size of Texas, blinking digital photographs of Mars, the same slate Victorian sky, corroded sweep of desert. In a turner or constable, it was the dash of red, a wheelbarrow or a hunting dog that set off the dense English foliage. Such a trick is needed. Something cold ladders my spine. Your meticulous labor, the caterpillar tracks not stitching, but embroidering the stock dunes and crags. Your soul an algorithm hashed out by startups in Silicon Valley. But when your machinery seizes as it must, and you slough the sheet metal like the platelets of a langoustine, your motherboard furred with rust, what of the dogma? No stone left unturned. The brainless jellyfish will die of agitation if left in a tank with corners. And in the end, it's not the ancient tools or the showstopper of man's first grasping at abstraction, but a snarl of ferns coiled tightly as clockwork in the tour's deepest gallery. Under the LED lights, roots, fine as hair, cling to wet stone, photosynthesizing an artificial moon. So the last one um, draws some of its imagery from, from Peking Opera, which is an opera, if, if you don't know, based in Beijing. And it's quite, quite stylized. It's an ancient art form. 
sets very with very elaborate costumes. And for me, the most um, incredible thing about this opera was how the how the singers sort of hold a note and stretch it. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's almost like they're trying to to plumb all of the, the potential emotion in one note. Um, anyway, so I will not attempt any opera. This will be, <laughs> this probably won't even get close, but we will try. A Night of Peking Opera. The scene, the square of Neptune, with its arched bridge and reed fretted pond. Ghosted, she performs that word bereft. Old vet pounding these boards again as magical thinking drops its particulate rice paper screens. They smear the distant, longed-for idyll, while bottom-feeding plumes of dry ice amputate me from the knees. Still I ricochet skittish puck of mercury through the melodrama's battered marks. A monologue. Something about how you have driven me to such blank and ordinary ritual. I all but stop at the bucolic plucking of petals, the counting of magpies, your name stitched in the cup of my bra. And I have such lovely things to say to you, babe, but I keep breaking, fraying into tongues, as horns bloom their sexual coral from my temples and a satyr's jodhpurs swell and bristle at my hips, and I lapse into a mistress's brittle ditty on the banks of that pond. Oh, better the devil that you know you know, be level with me, babe, don't go. Counting the seconds until you will call again in lucky twelves, in the narcotic future perfect, and that fabled river sung in beats between. Not lethe, but... Nine, Mississippi, 10, Mississippi. At 11, increasingly desperate, I cheat, stretching its sibilance to whippy skeins of the goose gum we fussed over maternally at school, while the two-string spike jitsu, jitsu pleads its slippery light mo motif against the bossy clapper's orders, until my trailing Chevy sleeves lose their lithe and witty flick, now dragging, sodden with water heavy as iron cables which refuse to conduct. And into your silence, in lieu of a bow, unable to trill or split the E any longer, I ring myself out into the orchestra pit I flood. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Our next reader is uh, Sheena Kamal, who's normally not allowed to have a fun bio. So she went all the way to the top with this one. She received the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize and the Strand Magazine Critics Award for her debut thriller, The Lost Ones, which was a national bestseller. America's most beloved critic, Roxane Gay, has called The Lost Ones an elegant, finely wrought thriller with a frustrating but compelling protagonist and gave it five stars on Goodreads. It was possibly the best thing to ever happen to a Canadian. <laughs> 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 so 
The sequel, It All Falls Down, was released July 2018, and the third installment of the Vancouver set series is expected summer 2019. In 2020, you can expect Sheena's first YA novel with Penguin Random House, which is called Fight Like a Girl. It is set in her hometown of Toronto and explores the connection between domestic violence and violence through the contact sport of Muay Thai. It's all a bit much, and Sheena fears that at 35 she has reached both her professional and sexual peak. She hopes there's another peak to look forward to and will continue writing until Roxane Gay tells her to stop. Please welcome Sheena Kamal. Oh my God, you guys, I might be peaking right now. Okay, so um, yeah, HarperCollins really does not let me have a fun bio ever, so I, I'm so excited to be here. So I, <laughs> I got to write that. Um, okay, so my debut novel, The Lost Ones, um, it came out, and uh, this was last year, um, and what was my point about that? Right, it's, it's out, it's, it's gone. This is my new one, it's called It All Falls Down, and it just came out this past summer. So it continues the story of my, uh, of my heroine from The Lost Ones. Her name is Nora Watts. And she, in this one, she uh, encounters a veteran from her father's past who casts some doubt as to the manner of his death. So she goes to Detroit, where he grew up, to try and figure out just what happened to her, her dad. And as she investigates, she starts to suspect that she's being hunted. So here we go. I'm going to start in the middle, as you do. With nowhere else to go, I end up at his back door again. No surprise there. If there's anything I've learned from my years of living in Vancouver without paying rent, it's that I'm a backdoor kind of gal. Didn't think I'd ever see you again, says Nate, when he opens it up. I hesitate, feeling somewhat guilty. I hadn't even sent him a text when I left. Can I crash with you? Depends. You going to pay the toll? I look past him at the flyers scattered on the kitchen table for Kevin's annual Angels Night Rally. The room is filled with a surprising mix of young people, except that in addition to the social studies students, there is a fresh group of earnest young men and women in cargo pants and fringed ponchos. Hippies. I know them well because the West Coast is like their mecca, and each summer they come in droves to wander around in their own stench, hefting their heavy backpacks, ostensibly searching for clean water and fresh beginnings, but too stoned to find any or even make a real attempt. But poverty hasn't ground them down yet, and they still spew words like, that's so meta, and the universe is trying to tell you something. I've chosen, that to, I've chosen to interpret that as a cue from the universe to get the hell out of that conversation, but it doesn't seem to matter to them. They just shrug and continue on, clad in hideous sandals and high as <laughs> I have an almost magnetic repulsion to hippies, but can't stop picturing Nate's cool, silent studio beyond the door. Want me to put up posters? Nah, they got these guys for that. From you, I want something else. I give him a hard look at this but his smile isn't salacious. I've witnessed flirting enough times to know when it's happening, but it's not something I'm well familiar with on a personal level. Nate's smile disappears. I want you to come sing with me, that's it. He steps back to let me inside. You're free to say no, I just like your voice is all, and I want to work with you. 
My hesitation is brief, but the draw of what he's offering overwhelms any remaining reservations. It's my soft spot he's appealing to now. The desire to sing again, which I cradle so closely, and I can't stay in the doorway forever. Somebody behind Nate has just said, if you put it out there in the universe, that energy is going to come back like a thousand times, which is my execute. Sing what, I say, as he leads me downstairs to the blessed silence of the basement studio. What else, he says after shutting the door behind us, handing me the lyrics to the song he'd played at the open mic night, the same one he'd been plucking his way through in the bathtub while I fell asleep. There are some people who are so persuasive that you will ask them a favor and suddenly end up on the hook for far more than you'd reckoned. It's only when we're in the bathroom together, me in the tub, and him sitting beside it with what has to be a $4,000 microphone between us that I start to remember why I don't ask for favors. But I'd be lying if I said it's unpleasant to be here. I'm tired, my throat is sore from all the chatting I've been doing, and I'm far too aware of his body so close to mine. The mic, a silver condenser, has an old-school look to it, and even though it's rather large, it does nothing to sever the thin line of tension that vibrates between us now. We'll have to share, he says, holding up a pair of headphones, the newfangled ones where the air cups rotate outward, so that two people can comfortably listen without smashing their heads together. He kicks the door shut, and now it's nothing but us and his music. So we put our heads together as that slow burn of a guitar intro starts up. He takes the first part, and I can't get over how rich and buttery his full voice is. I join him on the chorus, my tone so much lower, thrumming just underneath. His falsetto on the, on the hook is like cotton candy, so airy and light it practically floats through the ceiling. Then it's my turn on the second verse. We spend about half an hour like this, singing to each other and listening to the playback on his laptop. Still like the first one the best, he says, stretching out the kinks in his back. We've run out of bottled water, so for the time being, we're done. Neither of us wants to venture upstairs to scrounge around for some more. First time can be magic, I say. An awkward pause follows. Neither of us is pale enough to blush, but I'm sure the blood rushing to my face is giving it a shot. If you make it big, will you ever leave Detroit, I ask. I'd go play other places, sure, but this is where my roots are. My aunt, she was a singer here, still comes back time to time. My family were scattered all over the city. It ain't perfect, but it's our home. Apart from this studio and Kovacs' bar, Nate's home doesn't seem all that great to me, but what do I know? You ever think about leaving Vancouver, he asks? No. See, that's what I'm talking about. We all have to be from someplace. He stares at his computer for a bit, then says into the screen, I've been thinking about why you're here, figuring out about your dad and all that. Seems, to be, seems a bit crazy to me, but I get it. My mom's side of the family is American born and bred, but my dad was an Indian man from the Caribbean. He died of a heart attack when I was about 15. I can tell from his tone that sympathy is not what he wants right now. He doesn't expect me to apologize because his father's dead, doesn't even want to hear it. He was Amerindian. I didn't know that they were still around in the Caribbean anymore. He shakes his head, from India. I think the Amerindians were wiped out mostly. Indians came to the islands as indentured laborers from Britain, um, after Britain abolished the slave trade. They called them coolies. When my dad was growing up in the Caribbean, he used to ask his parents where they were from in India about, his, about their parents and his grandparents. They told him that his people were merchants, but he always thought they were lying. Nobody wanted to be associated with coolies because they were like slaves. Nobody wanted to be so poor they were almost black, even though that's why they came to be there in the first place. So he never knew where in India his folks were from. That part of their history was lost. 
I'm well familiar with this kind of creative reconstruction. For a long time in school, I used to tell the other kids that my dad was in the army, so he could never pick me up in the afternoon. When they asked about my mother, I would say that she was a nurse and she worked the night shift at the hospital. I had no idea what it really meant at the time. I just heard some other kids say it in relation to her own mother's noticeable absence. Then my foster brother told everybody in the schoolyard that I was an orphan while he held me up by my throat and shook me. As soon as I was free, I punched his lights out. I learned to keep my mouth shut after that. Reinventing yourself has its downsides. For me, it was my foster brother. For Nate's family, it was a breach of trust when his father realized that they were liars. Pretense can only take so much scrutiny before it comes apart. He puts on our song, which is how I've come to think of it. The conversation falls away while we listen. It's been a long time since I've heard my voice recorded. It's not false modesty to say that I can sing. It's a fact. This is the one thing that you couldn't take from me if you tried. Nate can sing too, even better than me, maybe. Right now, I'm amazed at what we sound like singing together. I want to ask what he intends to do with the song, but don't want to spoil the moment. Like the pretense of our past, what I'm feeling now can't be held up to the light. After a while, he sifts through his Motown Records collection, a throwback to the heyday of soul music in Detroit. I watch as he puts on some Marvin Gaye. We all know what that means. Vaginas are stronger than you think. They can be stroked, petted, filled, hold onto or expel unwanted objects with surprising muscularity. They can shed uterus linings and combat disease with the militant efficiency of CD4 cells. They can be locked away waiting for the love of a good man or even a decent night of romance. They can be cosmetically rejuvenated, revitalized, or surgically reconstructed after trauma. And I can lock this reconstructed vagina away forever, paid for courtesy of the Canadian taxpayer, or I can finally take it out for a real test ride, just this once, to see how it takes the turns. Halfway through, Nate pulls away. You're not with me. See, this is the problem when you don't get your lover from the internet. The expectations aren't clearly spelled out. I want to say, yes, I am, I'm right here, but he means something else, I guess. And the spell is already broken. We leave it unfinished, me undone, and go back to the song. Listen to it once more. I want to dislike it now after what has passed between me and Nate, but it's too good, and I just don't have any hate in me at the moment. I'm fresh out of emotions, all of them. The house has gone silent now. The students and activists and hippies have disappeared. I don't know how much time passes. Don't even remember moving to the couch and falling asleep. But I do remember the blanket he pulls over me and that before we'd stopped, I'd been taking the turns okay. Better than I thought I would anyway. And then just one part from later on. That night. There's a sound coming from the front of the house. I close the fridge door and about... and. I'm about to duck back into the basement when I realize what exactly is bothering me about the soft creak of a floorboard underneath a foot. The smell of patchouli has dissipated, so I know it's not one of the hippies, and the activists are so loud that I can't imagine them being stealthy in any situation. Stealth. That's what it is. I move to the back door, but before I get there, I hear Nate on the stairs coming up from the basement. It's too late now to run or to warn him. I grab the largest knife from the holder on the counter and I'm moving toward the basement door when Nate steps into the kitchen, rubbing the sleep from his eyes. A muffled shot rings out. Gonna leave you right there. Thank you very much.
so our closer tonight, I'm so happy that she's here. She's my label mate, my palimpsest, so I'm always happy to see her, uh, is Clara Duplessis. Uh, Clara is a poet residing in Montreal. Her debut collection was released from Palimpsest Press, spring 2018, and her chapbook, Wax Lyrical, shortlisted for the BP Nickel Award, was published by Anne Struther Press in 2015. Clara is the editor-in-chief for Carte Blanche and pursuing a PhD in English literature at Concordia University. Please welcome. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Like uh, Michelle and I did a bit of a tour together and Kinesia and I did a reading a couple of weeks ago. So it's really fun being back here. I'm going to jump right into a poem, which I'm guessing no one's going to understand. It's called Bruising. Iemand skuive gedig voor my gezicht in en sê, Lees. My oe skuifel jen en terug oor die papier, maar neem min in. Dit het te maken met die see wat in my ego lee. Die sachte klanke wat my oore omhels, krilliekie see mee om die slape van bewuste wees. Die puls van woorde wat nie vertaal nie, statig op hulle ritmes van betekenis, losgesig, ongodsdienstig, net in die sin, dat betekenis onethies rondval tussen keeses. Die een wie ek lief het, teen die een wie ek bemin. In Engels het bruising a ander sin, maar die diep skakeerde verklering van seer verblijk en kneesing en die onhandigheid van stampplek, die oopgebroke vloed van wond. Ek verwonder myself aan die klankspel, opborrelende maaltijd van alles in die boorskas, stom bruising wat net in blauw, pers en geel, is sonsondergang verklank onder die vel. So, <laughs> what I've been doing is, um, that's, that's I'll, I'll move to English now, but what I've been doing, I've been working on, on poems, um, it's kind of in collaboration with a South African artist, uh, Willem Bosov, who has compiled this dictionary. He's a visual artist, but he loves words, and he, he writes dictionaries in his spare time, apparently, and like, it's like fun dictionaries, like, only words that are about walking, or, uh, and some of the dictionaries are like two pages long, and some of the dictionaries are 50 pages long. Um, but the dictionary that I'm working with is only homonyms between Afrikaans and English, which means that they're spelled the same way, but they have different meanings um, in the two languages. And so bruising, for example, is bruising. It has exact same spelling, spelling but bruising means to froth or to foam. Um, and so I've been writing a series of these poems, and that's what I'm doing now, which is why this is the most recent thing, and I know you can understand that. But. Uh, now I'm going to jump to uh, Eka. I'm going to read the first um, poem in this book. First of all, we no longer write in black, but in white stones. In small towns on South African outskirts, names are outlined in whitewashed stones, pecked on hillsides to spell, to welcome, to warn against community from afar. Each name constructed with multiple stones, each name broken down to rocks the size of two grasping hands, the rocks handpicked, transported, tinted, laid to rest in the shape of a name. 
multitudinous, the name expresses itself only in plurals, always exaggerations. Repurposed, repatriated, stones estranged in new names. Names are larger than words. Word is to become, Wort is Wurt, which is not a word in English, Engels, angels. Scant undulation of landscape, which is not mountain, but towers over the town. If it is not a mountain, it is not a meaning. It is terrain as introduction, a vacancy to clarification, verklaring, vertolken, klipperkie, skip words over the landscape as it were a lake. Confusing when lake is meer in Afrikaans, but mer is sea in French, but zee is lake in German, and meer is moor, and zee is sight. Up close, rocks are the reverse of flowers. Flowers in the semi-desert shine, tiny pinpricks of white between grays and browns. The rocks are blanched, spotted with brown where the paint peels through to its original self, peering out as negative space lichen. Distanced, disintegration looks cohesive. On sight, standing between words, letters deform, rocks roll away. Names camouflage in vegetation, proximity instigates uniformity, changing a name to the exact same name requires an insanity of signage, new documents and maps a la carte. Identity politics of place, luxuriating ululations in the throat. Racializing script is like saying the skeleton is sexual to the bone, rock hard, clip art. Clip art, clip, cliff, off, or, or no, null, nil, nix. Tangible but illegible, my concentration dissolves toward the cacti, alien growth, thorny, throaty limbs, asking to, akin to, hand in hunt. Okay, I'm doing a bit of a tour um, of my work. I felt that I'd been doing a lot of readings lately from Eka and decided that apart from reading new work, I'm also going to read old work. This is probably also the only potentially lighthearted poem I have. <laughs> and the title is Dream in Radical Disclosure. It is during sleep that I experience intense release. Before, the pressure on my bladder is very strong. I can barely keep it in, like when I'm having sex without peeing in advance. And is it pleasure or pressure? I know I should get up to look desperately for the washroom. Looking, looking. I have lost something. Walk, uh, walking about, feeling vastly uncomfortable. Why are those girls looking at me? What have I ever done to them? Nothing. Or maybe, I can't remember. I don't know, even know who they are. I don't even know who, they, who I am. But I find hair everywhere, in food, in new books, in the drains of my room, a place so familiar, its public lavatory seems clean. If I had someone to phone here, I'd phone her up, feel me up, wake me up. Am I awake? I'm awake, I say, sure I'm awake. I say, absolutely sure I'm awake. I say, that's good, great, in fact. That's great news, I say, because I see a urinal up front. Don't worry. Women can use the men's lavatory sometimes. 
Unisex toilets always have the seats forgotten vertical or wet. This is stressful. Am I sure I'm awake? I don't know. Do something. Check, I say. Like what, I say. I don't know. Like pee a little? See if I'm on a seat, I say. Really? Can I do that? Live a little, I say. Live like liver, the most alive I've been. Like awake. Do it. I can do it. Then the release. The most intense sense of release. The pressure is less. I'm so grateful for finding this place. Things feel so good now. It's pathetic that things don't always feel this good. I should really make an effort to relax more often. It's not right how under pressure I always am. I should really concentrate more on the little pleasures. Like then, I'd know when something feels right. Something isn't right. I'm not awake, I say. How do you mean I'm not awake? You even said I'm awake. I say, well, I'm not awake, I say, but now I'm awake, I say. Now you tell me. Wet, the sheets too? I wake up so often at night these days. What's this about? I used to sleep all the way through. All these bathroom breaks, or whatever there is, ripping off the bedding, getting right into bed, getting right into myself. Peeing the bed. Um, yeah, so I just want to say again, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a real pleasure to be reading at the season opener of Pivot. Um, it's one of those series that you've heard about for, what, 10 years? You say it's 20 years? <laughs> so yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, also to read uh, with Sheena and Stephanie. Uh, thank you so much for your readings before, of everyone who's here. Um, I'm going to read one more poem, which is a new one. And actually, I feel like <laughs> I'm, I'm doing a lot of shout-outs tonight, but Dane Swan is here, too, and he's working on an anthology um, of new work coming out in a couple of years. <laughs> and this poem's going to be in it, so I feel like I'm going to read it tonight, and then I'm never going to read it again for two years. And I've been really obsessed with mountains lately. Like, I feel like I, I've written three, four, five longish works about mountains. This one is very specifically about an artwork that's above my writing desk. Um, it's a woodcut artwork um, by South African artist Cecil Scottness. And it's very colorful, very relatively abstract. You can still see that it's a mountain, um, very probably Table Mountain in Cape Town, where I also spend quite a bit of time. So it's Table Mountain really is a force um, for me. and creative invocation of some kind. Um, so this poem is called To the Woodcut Above My Writing Desk. Swimmers exercise their way along the bay, load tide excuse to brave the quiet waves that mark the end of the country. Water soaks up the bleach, bloated before receding. The bay twins itself in the mountain, in turn holding the city, inlay curve, ornamental a vessel of the most basic variety, tectonic chafing, everything it holds and everything on the reverse side it doesn't hold. It takes me 20 years to consider the geographic specificity of the mountain. Its obvious proximity to the artist's studio feeds my theory, nestled around the reservoir where I walk with my friend at the ends of days walking with a thrust forward into the distance covered, our insistence on kilometers rubbing shoulders with aesthetics, speed and physical exertion. But the beauty of this body of water 
fresh water dactylic surface letting the mountain in sometimes. Vertical incisions mark the territory of the artwork, shedding color, bristling with glee at the periphery of representation. I look up to this woodcut in, a way, in the way a wave pretends to be a mountain. For that instant, it reaches its cusp, then pretends to be air. I look up to this woodcut every day. It's a ritual of being a writer when an artwork hangs above the desk and the desk is a division which keeps words from falling to the floor. The artwork betrays my vision into everything. There's one sharp yellow shard and two thin red cuts kept apart by a sliver of paper peeking through. These lean upward into the sky, do not reinstate themselves as sentinels or sun rays, shimmering in precision. The little white nose, which is also the triangular sail of a boat, which is also a glint of light or a rock, bubbling up from the residual depths of everything, only glimpsed in the premise of cutting open or bulldozing the world into a quiet landscape of exposure. I ransack my vacancy, set myself apart from all the holy mountains I've consumed. The mouth of the river roils perpendicular to my opinion. Joanne Kiger's mountain, its tight poetic gestures dipping into mundane detail. Ittle Adnan's mountain, much smaller than expected on canvas, colored facets of landscape, pastel, and nuance. Ramana Maharshi's <coughs> mountain, a ventricular coursing a cavity lines landslide dipping through eyes that are currency for an intermediary in the color wheel. Paul Cezanne's mountain, fading slowly away, this repetition called obsession, called passion, called devotion. Sissel's mountain, which is my mountain, it's the one I look out on, even when it's not there, or I'm not there, because it is always there. It is my ability to be there that fluctuates. Sometimes I flare up and realize that the outline we so associate with my mountain is totally different from other angles. The relapse is tight, the soft fading into greens and blues, those cold colors chiseling away at the accordance, the early evening glower into darkness, polite fingers of light stroking the buttress, which is also under renovation. One wonders at the continued urge to renew, to reach into the small hearts of the settlements and insinuate dust as change. Of course, there's the potential of rental if these little outhouses are immaculate, spotless, and unstained by a capital weakness. A fault line surfaces and plunges into the crisp detail of its own potential for plunder. Reside here, grow, be a protrusion, shoot from the hip, project a collective hemorrhage into the soft expanse of the present. Plush lapdog mountaineer sidling through the underbrush, boots first to soften the blow between earth and heel, ankle elegantly poised to pick an elegy of flowers. 
Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again to our readers. Stephanie Warner, applause. Sheena Kamal, still peeking. And <laughs> Clara Duplessis, thank you so much for coming out for your wonderful readings. For more information about Pivot, go to pivotreadings.ca.